0: Thank you everyone for tuning into episode two of Strange McKnight's. My name is Daniel McKnight. Today we are dispatching from the 18th in Paris. We had a chance to sit down with one of my closest friends, Alex Brooklyn, who just recently moved here with her husband Adam and baby Walter. Alex and I go back about seven years during one of the craziest changes in my life, and it's a change that I would never go back and undo. It has opened up the world to me, and Alex has been a part of that. At this point, you could argue that Alex and I are more like brother and sister than we are just friends. Anyway, we spoke about everything from New York City politics to what the West Village was like in the 90s versus what it's like now. You know, similarities in our upbringings, etc. You know, it was a fantastic chat just between two old friends at this point, and I hope you guys really enjoy this. I had an awesome time doing it, and I... Hope you have an awesome time listening. No. Don't, stop talking over me. Bitch. What? I don't Who? know. What? I was going to do that. And we're live.
1: Well, we're not live.
0: Well, yeah. we're live. We're, we're live streaming on YouTube right now.
1: We're recording.
0: Right. So you were mentioning before the, uh, the peeping of Ally McBeal on the shelf in, uh, in this apartment in Paris.
1: Yeah. So we get in here in this apartment, a Montmartre, and the first thing I see on the shelf, and this apartment is very classically Parisian. <clears throat> it's got exposed wood beams, etc., etc. the windows that look out onto other windows. And I look over on the shelf, and there is straight up One, two, three, four, five, like five season DVD box set of Ally McBeal, which I found really odd with the first season mysteriously just missing.
0: Oh, it was the first thing we noticed. We walked in here and I said, well, Kristen said, Ally McBeal, really? And I go, and season one is missing. What's with the missing season one?
1: I feel like Ally McBeal and Sex in the City were both like extra were both extremely problematic, not just for body image, but for <laughs> self-worth for like many, many women in careers, women in, uh, I, I think Ally McBeal was in Chicago or something. I don't know mm. if it was in New York, but, <clears throat> you know, urban women having careers, but really all they think about is doing it and magically being anorexically skinny without ever working out.
0: Right, right, right. So we are here today with Alex Brooklyn in a flat in Paris. Do they call them flats here? Are they are Apartments. Domiciles. Domicile. I don't know what they call it. Domiciles.
1: Them here. Um, I know that an apartment building is immeuble. Oh okay. I'm gonna butcher some French words. Right oh yeah. Now. Yeah. There's a
0: in that book that I recommended to you. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, there's a whole scene when Napoleon is coming in and demanding things from people. It's a historical account of Paris during the Napoleon reign. And uh, there's an American that uh, they go like, we need to take your cows and blah, blah, blah. We need to take these things for the state, et cetera, et cetera. And he's just like, goes on, in the most atrocious French that you can ever imagine. He is almost like he, it was uh, some American diplomat. And it was almost like he put it on on purpose. And he was just like, well, you can have one cow and three chickens and blah, blah, blah. And he did it all in the most God awful French you could possibly do as an American. And it made the soldiers... Laugh so hard that they agreed to his terms. Mm. And they walked out with the one cow and three chickens. <laughs> and I'm probably butchering the story, but yeah. Uh, sometimes you just have to embrace that Americans suck at speaking French.
1: I was just reading about um, Houseman and the recreation and the beautification of Paris uh, from a tangle of small city streets to what you have now, which is these giant boulevards and these uh buildings that when you enter it, this is what Paris is famous for you enter you know doors on a boulevard and all of a sudden it's actually three buildings in a U shape with a beautiful courtyard even even the the shittier ones are still somehow incredibly gorgeous and that's all the like Napoleon the architect who he tasked with you know make this city make the city better this is what I want I want all of it to be more like this and right yeah eminent domain there there was no question at the time he was like just take all this land kick everybody out i think a lot of it had to do with the disease and spreading of cholera so where haussmann in paris um you know tore down a bunch of what we would call tenement buildings and and did this thing with the courtyards and the beautiful buildings in a u in new york for instance they were like Everybody has to create a single, at least a single shaft in the middle of these buildings with these disease-ridden rid- disease dwellings. And you'll still see them in apartments that now cost $4,000 a month. You'll walk in and there is a tiny, maybe like three foot by three foot, two foot by two foot shaft that was clearly cut into the building before that building code went into effect.
0: Well, I mean, we know that New York does these things because it's the greatest city on earth, Right.
1: I mean I was born there and I will say it's the greatest city on earth Me and New York right now we're having um, we're having a little bit of we're, we''re we're not making we're not our best selves around each other right now and so <laughs> we took a break
0: took a break and you came all the way here to Paris.
1: Yeah yeah we took a break we're not our best selves around each other and I was getting you know, really upset. I wasn't able to see any particular argument. Clearly, everything became about everything. You know, I would start talking about 20 years of bad policy when it came to psychiatric facilities in the state. And I would end up talking about, um, you know, campaign corruption in the mayoral election of 20, uh, what was that 2021?
0: 2021 <laughs> 2021, yeah.
1: 2021 and uh you know and i just realized sometimes when you really love a place you, for a long long time sometimes that relationship can become toxic
0: yeah you know sometimes if you really love a thing you have to let it go yeah, you gotta so, let it fly away but
1: new york was has always been hesitant to let me go yeah, yeah. actually and i can tell you a couple of stories about that every time i feel like in life every time I was about to get out, it reeled me back in somehow. It's like, what the
0: fuck is that scarf? Wait, no, that's Godfather.
1: Oh, every time I get out, they suck me back in. in.
0: (laughs) Well, you you, you know, you spent your whole life and basically growing in the the West Village. You've seen New York go through a lot of changes.
1: Well, originally, I, I grew up in Brooklyn, and then... My parents, so I grew up in Brooklyn, and I think my dad bought this apartment for something ridiculously cheap. It was a full five-bedroom wraparound apartment in Brooklyn Heights, you know, drug dealer money. And my mom had had the lease. They met in Greenwich Village, and she had had the lease on this little tiny Greenwich Village apartment. And they, like, kept that place, and relatives would stay there, you know, or live there. And they lived in Brooklyn. And sort of a reverse thing happened with my family when we lost all the money that my dad had um, and then spent on, like, legal defense funds or just, you know, parties. And my mom spent traveling. We had to move to the village, but that was, like, moving down. That was, like, downsizing for us.
0: It's amazing (laughs) that the village was downsizing at the time. You know, I moved to New York in 2003, and it was predominantly clean at that point but there were still remnants of 90s new york you know you'd walk through times square and you'd be solicited by pimps and hookers um soho was still a little kind of edgy to to a to a small degree you know um i don't know to a very small degree yeah. like yeah you know and then you also have the whole like brooklyn waterfront in williamsburg that was completely undeveloped you know and you had duff's bar over there and you really wanted to get dark and walk the wander wander the scary ass streets of New York, that whole waterfront was a desolate. Well, do you want to get dark zone.
1: about Williamsburg? You yeah, talk let's about do it. cokies. Cokies. Cokies with a K. Oh shit. When I was a teenager and you straight up just bought cocaine there <laughs> and did it. <laughs> <laughs> and did it there. I mean, it was absurd. But yeah, that waterfront, even in the early two thousands, that waterfront was so super undeveloped. And I was working in the art department on films and we would go and when we couldn't, when it was like an indie film and they couldn't afford to get a dumpster, we would go and just unload like beautiful, beautiful, well-built, you know, we had paid carpenters to make like beautiful flats and set pieces. And we would just leave them on Kent Avenue, kind of lined up against the wall. And you would also go down there to see if anybody else had done that and you could get like free lumber and windows <laughs> and amazing. couches and all this stuff that productions would just dump out so much so that there was a organization that started by this woman Eva Radke who Started trying to connect all the art directors in the city on this big Google group where they would be like, "All right, everybody, I have ten built flats. Before I go dump them on Kent Avenue, does anyone want them for their shoot?" (laughs) (laughs) I
0: feel like there's just this whole like section in New York that I missed out on. I know I came here in 2000, like I said, 2003. Um, I got on a plane in Seattle, JetBlue, one-way ticket. I had decided within six weeks that I was moving to New York. Didn't have a place to live when it landed. Found something online, one of those rent a week, rent a room by the week places in the Heights. SROs. Yeah, and shared well, bathroom. It, no, well, it was it's people's it was Dominican's apartments, mm. so I had everything that I could own on my back, and I was there was no air train. You had to get on a bus to to the to the A, and I kept bumping into this eight this like eighty something year old woman, mm. right. Don't be sad. She turns around and she goes, "If you hit me with that shit one more time, I'm gonna fuck you up."
1: That's awesome. And I was like,
0: "I'm in New York. I've arrived. This is amazing." <laughs> I've arrived, <laughs> but it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> An eighty-year-old woman just
1: tried to fucking knife me on the A train. <laughs> I mean, much res- respect. Any, I want—that's the kind of eighty-year-old woman I want to be. Absolutely. I, yeah.
0: And uh, you know, I rolled up to Washington Heights at the time. There was probably like, three white kids that lived there, you know, that weren't from there. And I rolled into this place, all Dominicans, and like, they're like, uh, can we help you? And I said, yeah, uh, I need a place to live. And I go, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, leave your stuff here. We got you. They walked me to the apartment that they were going to put me in, which they never do, but they just knew how green I was. They could, see, I mean, I was fresh off the boat from, you know, I wasn't in Montana at the time that I came here, but I was still very much a Montana kid, you know, uh, very, New York was Lied. a very- yeah, I mean the car alarms and the bachata and the fucking screaming on the streets that was like uh what is that, that was magical to me. You know.
1: <laughs> that's magical to me too. Like like I read about you know, the screaming on the street actually is not something that that I that, that's something I miss and when I say screaming on the street I mean communication. Mm-hmm. Um it's not you know, we have incessant car horns right now in New York because we didn't do what Paris did and build, like, a, a, a cycling, a huge cycling infrastructure. We aren't keeping the, the, the street closures. We're sort of opening it back up. We are making a whole big mess in politics over seating and restaurants being able to serve outside, which would make it more pedestrian, you know. <clears throat> and obviously not everyone can cycle, you uh, but everyone can walk. And so New York is so choked with cars right now that the honking is worse than ever before and the noise is just kind of unbearable to me. But the screaming on the street and the loud, gregarious idea that I can carry on a conversation across the street with a friend of mine and that that's that should be fine that's okay everyone else can listen to our conversation and it could be across an avenue yeah. i always loved that i w- volunteered at the jefferson market library garden it used to be a women's prison so you can see it on 10th and 6th avenue and it's a gorgeous building it's a library it's beautiful um the garden part you know it's got a board of trustees. It's technically belongs to the city, but they, you know, a bunch of like rich, older Greenwich Village citizens kind of dictate what can and it can and can't be used for, but they also take care of the beautification and there's volunteer gardeners and stuff. And I used to volunteer there and uh, I would talk to this old dude, Alan, who used to write for Rolling Stone and he's the one that told me about the history, how when it was a women's prison in that garden, the women would be able to yell from the windows and the and their friends or their boyfriends or pimps or whomever or mothers would be down at the street yelling up to them and they could communicate that way. <laughs>
0: That's amazing.
1: There's this amazing thing and growing up in New York, I'm always running into people in New York. So you can walk down the street and I'm like, hey, you know, let's call them Jerry, what's going on? And they're like, hey, I'm on the run. I got to get in this subway, but it's really good to see you. What have you been up to? Not much. Let's get coffee soon. Same number, same number. And you can be having this whole conversation while walking away from each other through 100 people on 6th Avenue.
0: Oh, yeah, and it's totally normal, even now. Even now, it's it's, good.
1: It's beautiful. Yeah. That part of it is beautiful that, yeah, a lot of people here say, oh, you know, I like Paris, but it's so dirty here. The subway <laughs> is so dirty. And I was like, bro, <laughs> don't ever go to New York. Oh, I my mean, God. I, I, the
0: heaps of trash. The heaps and heaps is, of trash. They
1: don't have. What's weird is, like, you can walk through a neighborhood here, and there aren't just piles of garbage in front of every restaurant. Right. Um, That probably has something to do with... Uh, You know regulations on garbage pickup and not just having a free-for-all of you know uh for-profit interests in in trash collection but you know
0: oh you know america baby (laughs) 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 yeah no I, i remember i was living in chinatown and it was the first time i'd ever seen moving trash mm I was living on uh, Mulberry Street at one point and then Mott Street at one point. And I walked by and I was like, what the fuck is that? And it was just a big trash bag outside a restaurant filled with rats. Mm. The whole thing was just pulsating and moving. I'm like, get me the fuck out (laughs) of here.
1: I'm still afraid of rats. No, no, they're
0: terrifying. They're too big. I chased one down there. I was drunk one night. I thought it'd be funny to chase a rat down the street. It turned around and chased me back.
1: I bet. I ran like a motherfucker. (laughs) Although I will say I don't want to kill rats. Right. I mean, I just want them, and they don't really want to fuck with me, um, but I am afraid of them. A friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, I don't know if I should mention her name and tell this story, but she's got a gorgeous voice, and she's a great musician, so if you ever want to know who she is, hit me up. Anyway, she was on Acid, and she saw two rats, and she was going, oh my god, they're just like people, because they were having some sort of human interaction, and she was on Acid, and you know how that goes. And she saw a doorman come out of a building like a big dude big dude come out of a building and just stomp on one of the rats just sort of and and the rat squished broken back guts flew and she says i swear to god i saw the other rat stand up on its hind legs put its little other two paws in the air, and scream a rat squeal, and then run away. And she said, from that moment on, I will never think of rats as anything but, like, (laughs) smart little (laughs) mini-humans.
0: Jesus. So tell me what it's like to uh, drag a baby across the Atlantic Ocean to Paris into a foreign country. Because Alex, uh, just, you know, for everyone, Alex uh, recently gave birth, recently as in almost a year ago.
1: Well, 10 months
0: ago. 10 months ago. Mm-hmm. Let's let's be clear, 10 months ago. Let's not advance the age too quickly, right? Uh, and then she decided, it's always been a thing, she decided, I want to come and spend some time in Paris, get out of New York and take a break, and uh, brought the baby with her.
1: Well, I've always wanted to travel. Like I was saying, there's been so many times when I almost got out, <laughs> <laughs> But for some reason, New York kept pulling me back. Um, Whether it was an opportunity or the thing about getting pulled back into New York is that sometimes it's not an actual opportunity. Sometimes it's just a sniff of an opportunity. And it's a weird desperation that pulls you back. That's like, oh, you're about to get recognized. You're about to make it right around the corner. Don't leave New York. Who are you going to be if you leave New York? Like. You're are you really gonna make a a living with uh, your writing and your artwork if you leave New York? Or are you about to get, you know, um, a, a big break because of all your hard work the last couple of years? You might be, and it's this weird. I hate to say it, but I think this weird, you know, capitalist trick um, that holds you to places that are essentially abusive. So I kind of just wanted to take a break and stop worrying about that. And I really always wanted to travel the world. And I never thought that it was a problem to do that with a baby. And um, I never really had found a partner until Adam, my husband, who thought, who was like-minded in that way. Like, yeah, there's no reason not to. Everyone thought my mother was crazy, but now my mother is legitimately mentally ill. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, this isn't why they thought she was crazy for just dragging us to Spain, uh, for a year and a half, uh, when my dad was in prison, but she just wanted like a nice time with her kids, you know? So for me, I thought, okay, if I could do that in a, in a more responsible way, I should. And you definitely, it's harder to travel with a baby, but it's worth it, Mm -hmm. um, I've found that everywhere we have gone, he was three months old, we went to Sedona, six months old, we went to California. At seven months old or eight months old, we came to Paris. And he, you know, you have to interact with a lot more of the true place that you're going. It's not just going to be all tourism and cute cafes. It's going to be places where other people with kids go, kids parks. Um, Since we are you know, looking for childcare here, we have to register with one of the big civil organizations. So there's a lot of paperwork and stuff like that. Just being able to hire some short-term childcare. Um, there is finding an apartment that's safe enough for a baby. So you have to interact with this level of a city when you travel with a kid, that's like a little deeper than when you're just going. And it does rub off a little bit of that shiny wanderlust and you're really interacting with like lines at the not the dmv but think places like the dmv but it also really makes you get to know a place in a slightly more intimate way
0: yeah um let's go talk about it you talked about traveling to spain with your mom while your dad was in prison why don't you talk about what that was like
1: I mean honestly it's some of the most vivid memories of my whole life. Um, My dad goes to jail and my mom always tells a story that now he, he had gotten himself transferred all the way from where he was in New York to California just to be closer to us and he like had appeals and, like, had his lawyers make a bunch of appeals because he was in federal prison.
0: Right. Maybe you can just kind of give a brief snippet of what your dad was doing time for.
1: Oh, he was a uh, drug trafficker, and it was his second time being busted. Uh, And he originally had, I think, had a sentence of 16 to life under the Rockefeller laws, and that was scary. But then they appealed, and there was a new trial or something. He ended up doing, I want to say, like, four or five years and then uh, six years probation. Um, but that was lucky because sixteen life would have been a real bummer. Um, <clears throat> so he makes it to Phoenix. We used to go to Phoenix every weekend to visit him, and somehow my mom was just thinking. She goes, "I don't want this life where I am stuck in some suburb in California, um, and I'm going to visit." you know, with the kids, their father and federal, they they have no magic in their lives. And I think she's witnessed something where, in one of the visitations, a couple, um, had had their children, like, line up around them as a barricade while the wife gave the husband a blowjob, and my mom was like, um... And we're not even talking state prison. We're talking federal. And I was like, I don't want to fuck with this. I want some sort of, I want to recapture some sort of beauty and magic in my life. Now, this is also a, a woman. She's like, you've seen this type of woman represented in every movie. In Blow, and Scarface. She was a, first an actor's wife. Then she was a drug dealer's wife. She smoked cigarettes. She was charming. Incredibly glamorous. Crazy as a fox. Um and this was one of her better ideas and we took off to spain where she had had some friends uh they're still family friends and we lived there for like a year and a half and during that time she took me to see the berlin wall come down um we went to paris and she just wanted to give us that wanderlust and um, it was really beautiful discovering all that stuff it was so foreign to me at the time
0: it's amazing the magic that a mentally ill mother can still bring to the table. Oh know? yeah, because you know we have that in common. Yeah, yeah. Crazy we have- moms club. <laughs> crazy moms club. Uh, yeah, you know, growing up with a crazy mom. Yeah, you know, my mom was a different kind of crazy. We were in small town Montana, uh, and we also have prison, prison mm. parents, parent, parental prison club. So <laughs> my mom did ten years, uh, in and out, uh, and
1: also dead siblings
0: club. Dead Siblings Club. Right, wow, we're in a
1: lot of the same clubs. It's <laughs> amazing. Okay, so Parental Prison Club, Dead Siblings Club, and Crazy Mom Club. Yeah, crazy. yeah, yeah. No it's wonder no one... we're friends. <laughs> 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 I don't think we ever, like, listed it off Yeah, before. no, it's amazing. I'm going to and... take a sip of this orange juice yeah, and do give you some ASMR.
0: Well, we put that on YouTube and you'll get a bunch of... <laughs> We'll put that on YouTube and get get you a bunch of hits and make some money.
1: Yeah, make some money.
0: Uh, yeah, no, it was it was crazy. Like, there were these moments, you know, we'd have, my stepdad would drink, and my mom was like, we're going out. And we gonna go to McDonald's. And, you know, McDonald's was our Spain, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was like magical chicken nuggets. All right. And then they came out with the all white meat chicken nuggets. And you're like, holy shit, life is good. You As know? opposed to what? like they apparently before they didn't have all white meat chicken nuggets i don't know what it was but i guess it was just
1: (laughs) (laughs) garbage but it was a thing
0: there was a huge uh, you know ad thing like or it
1: was just marketing it was like (laughs) you
0: know. oh yeah i grew up in a nice little town uh but you're having your birthday at mcdonald's you know that was a big deal yeah you know that was just it was just the nature of living in a place like that where you didn't have a ton of stuff but you know all things considered, my mom did her best. She, she dealt with three, four children by the time she was 27 with a severely alcoholic husband, completely isolated from everything she knew. Like every, everybody we knew was four to five hours away in Montana. That's a long ways to go mm. in a place like Montana. Cause you're driving through tons of wilderness and just lots of like vast land. And, you know, we'd go once a year and, uh, you know, for it was always impressive to see what she was able to do. She put herself through school. I went to her graduation. Oh,
1: nursing school, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: She became an LPN. She didn't get her full RN, but she also she also became a chemical dependency counselor. The irony of that, you know, <laughs> I was t- sharing a story the other day that she had a barbecue. She worked for the Salvation Army, uh, counseling addicts, and we had a barbecue, and uh, she invited a bunch of the, a bunch of her patients to this barbecue in our backyard up on West Hill in Great Falls. And uh, we had a large bottle of Listerine at the beginning of that party. And at the end of that party, that large bottle of Listerine was empty.
1: Wait, but why?
0: Because one of her patients was going in there and taking shots of Listerine. And that was my first real, like, oh, shit. Mm, Addiction's crazy, you know? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I didn't realize that people were so desperate. Like, oh, like, if I was ever decide to drink... I just watched those people and be like hiding that shit and be like, bro, just go drink. See, like,
1: I, were, I were, uh, grew up around people who made like wine look really glamorous because I can't remember my mom drunk right. ever. And she had, she would have a few glasses of wine. I can't remember my dad drunk ever. But my dad smoked weed every day. Mm. And I do remember like the smell of weed, actually, not straight from a, a packet, but like just that smell of weed recently being smoked in the air and like, you know, around a, a heavy upholstered couch, that being very a scent that I was very familiar with as a child. Like I never got contact high or anything, but just that scent was in the air. And my mom, um, so my dad smoked weed every day. My mom smoked a million cigarettes all the time. And she was always trying to quit and always couldn't. And it wasn't, I think my interaction with familial addiction was more, it was, it was like uh, underneath a little bit until it bubbled up. These were all <clears throat> perfectly acceptable things to do in their circle of friends. Smoke a bunch of cigarettes and have a glass of wine. Smoke a little weed and then, you know, go about your day. Um, and it wasn't until I was... You know, heavily traumatized teenager running around the streets of New York City taking and doing anything I could get my hands on because I was the one brave enough to go into the half-empty deli on the corner of 13th and 1st and say, I would like one $20 bag of cocaine, please. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I, I don't think I really interacted with a desperation when it came to alcohol and drugs until it was me. As a teenager. Yeah.
0: You grew up in the 90s in West Village, essentially, 90s. right? Yeah. The we 90s, moved... It was like the golden age of the West Village.
1: <laughs> we, when they were getting divorced, my dad stayed in the West Village apartment. We were in Brooklyn. And when my dad then moved in with his fiance at the time... I mean, their divorce was nine years. So uh, he had met a woman during that time. and My mom had, had met a dude. And so he moved in with her at her rent control place on East 10th Street and my mom, when they lost the apartment, the nice one in Brooklyn Heights, um, we moved into Greenwich Village. So I think I was about 15 and that was the mid-90s, yeah. Yeah,
0: why don't you tell about what the, talk about what the village was like in the mid-90s? Well, you It know. doesn't seem like that long ago to us. There's this really funny trope that goes around and it's like, you know, can you believe that 30 years ago it was 1979, <laughs> you know? Right. And you're like, and I had a really hard time understanding what was trying to be said there. So, when you tell me something was 30 years ago, I was sharing this with somebody the other day. I think it's the 1970s. Right, right, right. right. But really, it's the 1990s. Mm -hmm. So, it's pretty, it's just crazy to think that like 1992 was 30 years ago. I was listening to Nirvana on a reservation in Montana, (laughs) you know, living in some other person's attic. Right. You know, life was very different. And uh, to me, it feels like it was 10 years ago. Yeah. You know? So I think that's why it's interesting. Like, it feels like it's not that long ago to us, but to other people who might be listening, it was a million years ago. Until I
1: wake up and I'm like, fuck, are you kidding me? I'm 40, bro. I'm fucking 40. (laughs) And you're still alive. (laughs) And I'm still alive. I'm not only still alive, I don't look like shit. Right. Which is, and it's not of my doing, but I think there's a couple reasons. I know this is a tangent, but there's a couple reasons I don't think a lot of people. Of our generation look like complete garbage at 40 like, like they, they did used in the to. 80s yeah or in the 80s or in the 60s or whatever right, right. first of all my dad's always been a workout fanatic and my mom even with a million medications and smoking cigarettes somehow looks good at 65 or 66 or whatever she is um but i remember what's so after my weird kind of paint your face goth days goth slash hip-hop days of the 90s i um I didn't really wear a lot of makeup. I didn't have to. That currency wasn't, was becoming less and less necessary for me to get jobs, um, even in professional settings. So I didn't necessarily, you didn't have to, in the early 2000s, you didn't have to look as, uh, the same kind of groomed as you used to, to be a woman trying to enter a newsroom or um, work on a film set or something. So I didn't really, I just sort of stopped wearing a lot of makeup and i think that kind of saved me um and i think a lot of women look a lot better now because they don't they haven't worn makeup every single day
0: right my mom used to wear so much makeup that it looked like she was wearing a mask so my aunt would have to go up to her, my mom would put the foundation on her chin so it was a complete in like straight line around the contours of oh, her wow. chin my aunt my aunt sherry would have to go up and like, because my mom blend it and blend it for her. But my mom was like, you know, it was tough for her. You know, her parents were both dead at 16. So her father died of colon cancer rapidly, and then her mother killed herself maybe two months after that. So within two months, she lost both of her parents and she was completely alone. And she was living in foster care in California, got sent up to Montana, mm-hmm. and she just, you know, she only had her looks. Like right. she wanted to be charming and beautiful, and she was covered in acne though. So it's just. What do, yeah. you, what do you do to solve an acne problem? You cake it over.
1: Right. Now with it's tons like tons of makeup. Now they would say, okay, give yourself a couple months, but let it air out. Don't put heavy, you know, they used to try to wipe it and dry it out with alcohol based stuff. And now they're like, actually, just keep it clean and make it moisturized and, you know, that kind of, yeah. or they'll give hormone therapy. But so in the 90s, um, you know, Wait, where did where were West we Village going? in the nineties. Because you spent a lot of time
0: in the West Village in the nineties. You were on the cover of Time magazine in That's the nineties in the West Village.
1: That's true. As like the children of the flower children and what was wrong with us. <laughs> um so in the nineties there was this very interesting thing going on in New York. First of all, if you want to know what we dressed like and you wanna know exactly how we looked in the nineties, go to Washington Square Park right
0: now. Oh, it's amazing. I feel like I'm stepping back.
1: exactly the same. I feel
0: like I'm stepping back in time. All
1: of the different ones. Like, even the goth slash hip-hop thing that happened in the 90s where I was online for Gangstar uh, to sign a, a CD I had bought, but I had, you know, black fishnet, like, gloves on and big door knocker earrings, plus the black, uh, liner around my lips with no lipstick plus, you know, spiked out hair. So there was this strange thing going on in the nineties where you had all these crossovers, punk and goth it were, were meeting hip hop. You had Timberlands and black fairy wings. So it was just all crossing over. This is the, this is the world in which, uh, insane clown posse, you know, yeah. not from New York, but insane clown posse was able to be fostered at this strange moment in time where there the lines of separation between genres of music um and being associated with that as a subculture were all starting to blend. And and you saw that a lot with the rave scene too. That kind of the rave scene had a lot of streetwear and a lot of influence at least aesthetically, from hip-hop culture, but you also had your spiked collars and stuff like that from punk culture, um, and it was just an interesting time to be around, but it's all coming back almost exactly the same. in Wa- and, and you can see it in Washington Square Park. There's a lot of skateboarding. Um, it, it's as though it, 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 without the cell phones, um, it would be the same.
0: Yeah, uh, it's you wild. Know. It's so, like stepping back in time every time I go in there. It's Part of the older guy in me is like, oh, that's fucking annoying. But then there's like, holy shit, this is where I would be. Right. This is exactly where I'd be. Like, I couldn't, we were talking the other day, I couldn't afford Jinkos. Mm. right? Shit <laughs> was too expensive for us. The J.C. JCPenney's it was too expensive. And I used to go to the thrift store and just, you know, I was a size maybe 26, 28. It was really slim. And I would get like size 42 jeans and like just mm-hmm. put a rope around them. And that was my style. And I see kids doing that now. Like, where the hell did this come from? You know, it's pretty wild. It must have been what our parents thought when we co-opted their 1960s and 70s style. I remember
1: seeing, uh, what was that movie, um, Days and Confused, and then wearing bell-bottoms for a long time. But, uh, so I was 13 when kids came out, the movie Mm, Kids. And when I was 12, I was recruited to audition. And I was, at the time, I was very shy. So even though... Because I hung out in Washington Square Park all the time. So they had recruiters out there. They had signs up around the entire East and West Village saying, like, kids, New York City kids, we want you to audition for a movie. Everyone I knew auditioned. And one recruiter just, like, asked me to come and audition. And I think I was just meek or shy or talking low or whatever. But I had been asked to come back as an extra. And I still can't find myself in the movie, but in the big Washington Square Park scenes, I'm there somewhere, or I'm not actually there on film, but I'm there. Um, (laughs) So that was... There's a couple things about that movie that I do not like at all um, and I think was really misrepresentative of the way kids were at the time, but there's a lot of things about that movie that were spot on. Um, Some of the things that I think it misrepresented was... uh, You know, I was an impressionable girl that was similarly a virgin around that time. There's no fucking way that I was losing my virginity to Leo Fitzpatrick with a lisp. Like, that's not ever something that would have happened. So I don't know what the fuck they were thinking. But you had these beautiful girls in this movie losing. It's just like, um, unfortunately, somebody having sex with a girl while she was sleeping was probably... uh, you know, when you have a bunch of unsupervised children, um, essentially running wild with no consequences, there's a lot of fucked up shit that happens because <clears throat> there's uh, there's very there was very little safety, and there was no a lot of times there was just no adult guidance for any kind of moral compass whatsoever a lot of the adults in the picture for the kids that hung out in washington square park were either at work or absentee or mentally ill i mean everyone i knew had incredibly intricate strange situation from that park we were a bunch of really deeply traumatized children just trying to run around and figure it out. And, and of that, I think the movie is representative. So I went to a specialized high school. In New York, you have to start gearing up to take these specialized tests. And it was less segregated when in the 90s than it is now, oddly. Um, there's like all these biases that have made the specialized schools more white and Asian and less black and brown kids have been in but in the 90s it was it was pretty diverse uh, oddly so I went to LaGuardia you had LaGuardia High School for the Arts at the time It was in the 60s by Lincoln Center you had Stuyvesant which was downtown near Chambers Street you had Bronx Science Brooklyn Tech uh, and a couple other specialized schools but these are schools the kids would travel to go to whether it was for academics or art or dance or whatever. And you had kids on the train every morning for an hour coming all the way from Sheepshead Bay to go major in art at LaGuardia up near Lincoln Center. And so this common meeting point for where everybody could go after school for a couple hours was Washington Square Park. And a lot of the neighborhood schools, if you weren't going to a neighborhood school, if you were traveling, everyone, all the kids from the specialized schools just like, it was a hub um, for people to interact. Now, McDougal Street was a lot different. NYU had not inspired the kind of deep uh, change. And by inspired, I don't mean that they bought property, right? I mean that NYU started having to, and the surrounding neighborhood started catering a lot to like young, drunk, fratty culture before it was little cafes, and it was still crazy, and drunken, and musical, and poetry readings, but also, you know, pot smoking, and arguments, and fights, but it wasn't this templatized off-the-wagon next to artichoke pizza, where there's a line around the block, and some drunk girl in 40-degree weather wearing a miniskirt, you know, it's just... They really kind of strip mauled it a little bit. Um, but it was, it was very cool in the West Village, and there was still some working class people there. You know, a lot of rent control and rent stabilized apartments still had the original families buildings still had supers that lived in the building with their family for preferential rent. So you had a family that was there that was responsible for fixing your faucet and stuff like that. Like someone you could go to, someone who was there to look out for the building. Um, and so there was this element of the last vestiges of the working class people in the West Village. And you don't have that now. And you're sure as hell not going to really have that for very much longer after Eric Adams stacks that rent regulation board with a bunch of people who are going to hike those fucking stabilized units. So even the old people who still pay preferential rent will probably get kicked out and be forced into That's nursing uh, homes. Whatever. But no big deal. No big deal. It's like talking about an ex-boyfriend. I can't not slip into talking shit yeah, about you know. New York right now.
0: That's you. You, know. uh, you know, can talk about New York right now and what you think is going on over there. You know, obviously, uh, you were mentioning the other day. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit. And like, there's this magical time. It seems magical in hindsight, the nineties in New York, you know, uh, everything always seems magical in hindsight, the nostalgia of everything, you know. Uh, you know, I go back to Montana and I feel like that. So when you compare New York in the nineties the way it was there, and how you see that it sort of slipped into this sort of like very like, you know, you see things like going up like Hudson Yards and you see like Eric Adams being voted in and we had this moment. You talked about having this moment to really make some systemic change that would have been without the need for a social revolution, without the need for like, Oh, when I was talking about COVID, when you're talking about COVID and like, you know, obviously we don't have to talk about the time during COVID. You know, I think the more interesting thing to discuss is the time after COVID when we're coming out of it and what your thoughts are with that and how it compares.
1: Well, there's a, there's a guy documenting New York right now, Jeremiah Moss vanishing New York, who, if you go on his Instagram, uh, it's got a lot of photos of the removal of homeless encampments, et cetera, et cetera. You know, he's very lefty, he's very protesty. And, uh, although I have my own issues with the naivete of a lot of people who are calling for certain social change, um. And the way they think it should be gone about, I do think that the the, the necessity for anger at what we have allowed the city to become is, it, it's necessary, basically. Um, it, it's like we can get angry at Eric Adams for removing those encampments, but we need to start thinking about getting angry at the policy that's been voted in over and over and over again for the last 20 years that created that problem. And we need to start looking to the future and to 20 years from now and start voting in the policy that we want to see. So this is one of my issues with what's going on in New York right now. So COVID, devastating. You know, uh, Jeremiah Moss is coming out with a book that, that talks about his experience during COVID. And this kind of feeling of freedom i think i mean i haven't read the book uh hopefully he'll be on the podcast that i do which is FAQNYC but uh there was a feeling of a, a restart so covid's devastating awful a lot of people are dying it's really exposing a lot of stuff at the time about our failures in hospitals and things like that <clears throat> what was hopeful about co- the covid experience here's what was hopeful now whether or not Cuomo did this because he's in the pocket of big hospital or they were a lot of donors, he did a lot of things that were favors to big hospitals. Um, but he managed to, after some closed-door meeting, completely almost socialized the supply, <laughs> the supply distribution between private and public hospitals at, in, in the matter of a week. I'm not saying Cuomo's such a great guy. He's, he's not, but I'm just saying that was possible. And this is something that everyone in America claims is just so out there to bridge the gap between public and private uh, medical care so that, you know, everyone can help each other with overflow or something in the future. No, it was managed to do within a week. Um, so that's just one small example. The other example, eviction moratorium, eviction moratorium goes into place. Trump, calls a halt on, um, like, uh, you didn't need to repay any federally backed loan for homes, especially if you had someone uh, in the eviction. You saw it starting to go all the way up to the banks to do some, like, loan uh, suspension or halt on payments or something. So you could have an eviction moratorium so that people who were in the service industry who couldn't work from homes, they weren't going to get evicted. The landlords weren't going to have to repay their mortgages. They had a halt on that. And eventually, there would have been, or could have been, some sort of citywide effort to talk about maintenance, garbage, things like that, to help out some of these building owners um, so that they could keep, even without rents, their, their their buildings in a good place. Also, we saw production go into place. Do you remember the days where it was like, oh no, we have, we have no ventilators, we have no masks, we don't know what to do. And so there was talk of starting medical supply manufacturing along uh, the waterfront and Sunset Park. That would have created a, a bunch of working class jobs, which of course those people would would need affordable, actually affordable housing. So I started to see all these things happen out of necessity, out of this global pandemic, that without some sort of argument, without some big revolution, would naturally just provide the solutions for a bunch of needs that we were going through because of this global pandemic. You saw people with PUA, Pway um, and and unemployment insurance. We saw essentially the testing grounds for a universal basic income where people could just like be okay. We saw uh, eminent domain go into place or, or hotels in a sense. I mean, not really, but hotels start to house homeless people and families. And it wasn't just all Oh, no, look, we have a bunch of homeless, drug-addicted men on the Upper West Side. There was a bunch of hotels that started housing people and not a lot of complaints. There were families. There were women. There were men that were putting back into place this old style of an SRO. And then it was hopeful. It was like, wow, these are possible. These these are, are possible things. And one of the reasons why I really needed a break was because one by one, really slowly, not really slowly, fast... One by one. Now, everybody, if they don't file proper paperwork and can't justify that they needed pandemic relief, they might have to pay it back, which means you need, I I was going through it, you need paperwork from 2019 saying that you could have maybe gotten work. Now, who are you going to get? You're going to get the business owner that you were working for in 2019 to make an affidavit? Like, no. It's just punitive on the poorest of people. Then you see all the homeless people getting kicked out of the hotels. They're not trying to buy the hotels. They're not trying to make them better with security or supportive services. They're just kicking them out with garbage bags full of shit back into conglomerate shelters. Eric Adams' big contribution. Oh, we have another new 500-bed conglomerate shelter. Like, fuck you. Why is that? Why is that chill? Um, You know, you saw hospitals and and beds starting to open up, you saw people starting to really mobilize, although that was a bit of a failure on the de Blasio's front to help the overwhelming amount of mentally ill in the city. And little by little now you just it's like, oh the world's open up. Let's go have brunch. And the day Eric Adams clears a bunch of homeless encampments, he's caught on video standing next to, I don't know her name, she's some famous actress model, Chloe DeVignanier or something. (laughs) Chloe (laughs) DeVignanier. And she's like gyrating with this champagne bottle, and he's standing there being the mayor of New York City, and the event is for Wells Fargo to introduce a new credit card specifically for renters. So now renters can just go into debt to a, a bank, not to buy a place, but just to rent.
0: I had no idea that that's what that event was that's about. What, that was yeah. a Bond 45 event, I think, right? Yeah, they it was Bond 45. Yeah.
1: I know nothing against Chloe Devinney, but um, <laughs> like but there was something really stark about you know
0: I saw the video. yeah, Like him bobbing his head and
1: just him like, bobbing his head and her being like, yeah, I love "Japan." Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's pretty wild. Sorry so, to
1: get so social justice on on the whole thing, but you know. You
0: no, know, it's fine. It's all, you know, we're all about it. Do you, uh, I mean, what do you think your future is in New York, with New York?
1: I mean, so in January 2020, I did something called Don't Bury the Lead, which was an interactive um, history of New York journalism print journalism where people could look through old newspapers and type on typewriters, and they were invited to stay as long as they wanted. It was set up like an old newsroom and a newsstand. They could watch TV, and nobody would bother them. And I thought that that was going to be my future. Um, I think my future with New York lies somewhere with more involvement with civic service, maybe with empty storefronts that can educate but also be fun um the high school I went to is one of the best high schools I think in the whole of ever of the land uh city as high school and they're coming up on their 50th year and so if you want to know what I was like in the 90s um you know I was I was a junior in high school and I had four art credits from LaGuardia because I just like went to school and did other shit and painted pictures and smoked a lot of weed and sold acid and stuff And um, I was about to get kicked out, and I had nowhere else to go. Urban Academy and a bunch of these other second-chance schools wouldn't let me in, and um, I was also dyslexic, so writing an essay, I would always type my essays um, because writing an essay would reveal very quickly an issue. Um, And City Az High School really helped me out, and basically they take, I guess, like, Shitty near dropout drug addict teens, and they give them honor student opportunities. They don't hold your hand, but they're like, here's a bunch of opportunities that only go to kids that have excelled in the honors since they were little. And we know that a lot of those kids come from rich parents and stuff who have tutors and blah blah blah. And they're like, here's all the opportunities they get. Let's see how it helps you. Um, That's internships, special college classes from the new school where you get transferable credit and. Within like three months I was working at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I was taking Russian literature at the new school and mixed media sculpture also at the new school. And I became like this real person that I was proud to be. Um and that I think is one of the more beautiful things about Greenwich Village is actually City Ads High School.
0: Yeah. You see it there if you if you go down to the West Village. They have a massive mural on the Hudson Street side of that building. It's incredible, but it's a beautiful building. And I I had recently a Facebook post recently. A friend commented on something that I posted. I don't remember what my post was, but she had spoken about being a student at City S school Mm. in the 90s, maybe 2000s, but hanging out at Limelight. Oh, yeah. And then sleeping on a bench outside Mm -hmm. of City S school and waiting for the day to start and then getting up in the morning. And going into class and doing the whole thing over. I'd worked with her in production, but it was just it reminded me of you. I was like, oh my god, yeah.
1: they were amazing. I called my advisor once and said, hey, my I just had to commit my mom to a mental hospital last night, um, and I'm really hungover because then after that I had a party at my apartment. Um, so uh, <laughs> I don't. And she goes, okay, well, when you're ready, just come by tomorrow, and we will rework your schedule so that we can figure it out, um, so that we can figure out how you can still be coming to school, but obviously you need to, in the middle of the day, go and visit your mom every day and stuff like that. And yeah. they worked with you. I had a graveyard shift of Vizelka f- when I was 17. Um,
0: and for people who don't know, if this, tell them what Vizelka is. Oh,
1: it's a Ukrainian restaurant in the East Village that's kind of famous. Um, kind of famous.
0: Kind of Alex is kind of famous now, too. <laughs> no. if um, you go into Vasilka with Alex, everyone knows who she is. No,
1: because a lot of the people <laughs> don't work there anymore, except one woman.
0: There was one. We yeah. were there. We were there one night. And there She's was one older woman.
1: and she yeah. has beautiful eyelashes. Yeah. Uh, she, uh, but basically, um, I worked the graveyard shift Sunday, so I told my advisor that. And my, we worked my schedule, so I didn't have class or an internship until the afternoon on a Monday. Mm-hmm. And it was like that respect. This like respect, respecting kids like they were adults. A lot of these kids, they just been so disrespected in their lives for whatever reason. We could like list the amount of like trauma shit, but it was just meant the world. Mm. Did you ever have a? Did you ever have like a thing in Montana where at your school or like what was your uh, kind of sanctuary?
0: Ah, uh, theater. Theater. Contrary to what people might know about me, I was a theater kid. I tried to do sports briefly. Um, and I, I, it's not that I sucked at sports. I'm an athletic. I have the ability like to run fast and uh, be athletic in general. But for whatever reason, uh, in June, so our high school in Montana was overcrowded. Oddly enough, you know, we had an extremely overcrowded high school because was it, it the was a whole kid time. high school. <laughs> <laughs> It was called Flathead High School. No. Yeah. Yeah. But why? And it was it was a it was a, I think that, it was a white man's name of the native tribes from there the mm. I think it was Salish Kootenai, uh, Snohomish. I know Snohomish is more like Pacific Northwest, but they had I think it, there was a a tribe that would put wood on their head and flatten their foreheads, and so it's called Flathead Indians. Um, and I don't know how they feel about that name. I don't know. know if they adopted it themselves or not, but that was kind of, I think. Is it a, a an white...
1: adopted nickname? Like, is it on shirts and stuff? Yeah, or... Flathead.
0: Yeah, like, oh. you know, and it's the Flathead Braves and Bravettes. Um, Bravettes? Yeah, yeah, for the girls' team. <laughs> <laughs> they, haven't, they haven't caught up with the times, Alex. I wonder, <laughs> are
1: they, may, is there a reckoning? <laughs> I, mean, I wonder. Possible. Yeah.
0: Possible. Uh, the, I you know, but the junior high school is where all the freshmen went. So I was in junior high school for three years instead of, like, two from, like, seventh and eighth grade. I was in junior mm. high school for seven, eight, and nine. But I had decided, for whatever reason, I latched on to this, these two kids who came to my school. I, I, I want to th- think it might have been my friend, Josh. They're sort of friends.
1: Hold on, fuck me. It's still called Flathead High School. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Damn. Yeah. All right. They do have a new high school now. It's called Glacier High. Much more appropriate.
1: Appropriate name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: but at the time, we were the only ones. Most of the valley went to that high school, and that's why there's so many kids. Uh, but we had some kids come to the high school to talk us to us about the speech and debate team. And I was just like this shy little kid that didn't talk. To, you know, I tried to make friends by bringing gum to school with my paper route money. Uh, you know, they would... Try to give me swirlies in the toilet, but it was all like, oh my God, I have friends. They're paying attention to me. You know? I
1: I w- I, in early junior high, I was also like the butt of the joke friend yeah, yeah. with yeah. This, girl, this girl group. Um, yeah, yeah. That was terrible.
0: So I, I want to say it was Chris Kosky and Josh Nickerson who came to talk to us about the speech and debate. I could be getting that completely wrong. It could have been somebody else. But for whatever reason, I was like, I want to be like those guys. They were fun. They were confident. I viewed them as that.
1: These weren't the guys giving you swirlies.
0: No. Yeah, because fuck guys. those guys. Dennis Meredith gave me swirlies. Fuck you, Dennis. Yo, Dennis? <laughs> he didn't come to the 20th anniversary of our high school union. I did as a high school dropout. Mm. So
1: <laughs> We're going to find you, Dennis. Yeah. So, <laughs>
0: um, the uh, but I went and I joined the speech and debate team, and I found that I had a, a talent for it. You know, I could get up and give a speech. And I latched on to humorous interpretation of literature which is basically you have to hold a book and you stand in a solid place and you tell a story but you're really acting but you have to do it like you're telling a story and so you flip the pages you give an intro you flip the pages blah blah I did this thing called Don Brown's body it was like a Mike Hammer spoof you know from like the old private dick stories in the day and it was ridiculous Um, and I did really well with it and
1: I'm an old PI, like a boss. Yeah, i Yeah, I'm, I'm my
0: camera. I don't and take. And then she
1: walked in.
0: I don't take no slot from nobody. <laughs> she walked in this with guy. a
1: problem and heels to match. Or yeah.
0: Well, this guy asked me what time it was, so I kicked him in the mouth. So you that's know like that like kind my of shit. Dad. <laughs> yeah. My um, dad's
1: old age, it's like, oh, I got a really good story. I'm like, oh, what is it? He's like, one time I was sitting outside the apartment, and this guy looked at me wrong, and I was like, hey, fuck you. I'm like, that's your fucking whole story. <laughs> sounds like some of my stories.
0: <laughs> some of my stories, that's how they end. But like, not like that, but right. just like, but where's the rest of the story? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I latched on to that, and I got good at it, and I started placing in meets, Like, we'd go to meets, and I'd do well, and I'd make finals. And I would always get my ass kicked by this girl from Bozeman, you know? But it was so fun. And I would get so nauseous before giving a speech. Because in a way, it was like you're going in with a bunch of people that don't want you to do well. Right. And people judging you mm-hmm. in there. And so, you know, oftentimes the judges were very, like, they didn't know what they were doing. You know, like, they were just whatever they liked the best. Um, but it... Gave me a sense of confidence I don't think I ever would have gotten in sports. Uh, and it gave me a community that I never really had. And and then that led into theater. So I auditioned for theater, and I ended up doing really well with that. And then I was like, I want to be like Robin Williams. I want to be like Jim Carrey. Uh, it's interesting because
1: both of the people that you named... Uh, both of the people that you named have a relationship with acting that is a relationship with acting and the audience that is weirdly intimate, mm-hmm. weirdly candid and really vulnerable. Yeah, like both both of those those examples.
0: And this is the 90s, so you weren't gleaning information off the internet. You right, know? it was before Jim Carrey
1: went crazy, before Robin Williams killed himself. Yeah,
0: you know, and it was like you only had what you saw on TV in their performances. And, and for whatever reason, those are the guys that I, I was like, I want to be like those guys. and uh, But I found all of that in theater, you know, it was in Shakespeare plays. We did The Crucible. I played Reverend Hale, you know. Um, I played all 150 pounds, six foot 150 pounds of me, played Humpty Dumpty in Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> Uh, They had to put like 17 clown suits on me to make me look fat, uh, and then fall off a wall in the back. And you know it was fun. It was just, you know, and people were like, "Oh, people are gonna think you're gay in the theater department." That never happened, you know. (laughs) I actually got some modicum of popularity because I think this
1: secret is out by now. But like, I think actually, I think the secret's out right now that actually, if you're a hetero dude in the theater department, you get a lot of pussy. I didn't though.
0: Absolutely you not, man. I was a virgin until I was twenty-two years old. So, well,
1: Laguardia had such. Laguardia was known for their drama department, so it was huge. I mean, the kids in Laguardia, the the drama kids I knew. I mean, they were like. They were looking to be professional Broadway actors within a year of graduating yeah. high school. Timothy Schmal- uh, yeah. Timothy Chalamet went to my high school, LaGuardia, right. and has my same birthday, so we're pretty much the same person, actually. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Of yeah. course. I mean, as it goes. I mean, yeah. Yeah.
0: So, but, you know, I, my family life, obviously, I would spoken about my mom doing time. My mom did time uh, for felony theft, forgery, things like that, you know, addict-based crimes, you know. Um, state. Yeah, in the state. State prison. Yeah. Um, But she wasn't in prison in high school, but she was on her way. Mm -hmm. You know, she was falling apart. Like I wasn't living with my father anymore, but I wasn't living with my mom. I was living with my stepdad in this old shitty house next to Blockbuster Video. Uh, And like we couldn't get enough hot water to take a shower. Like I could only get enough hot water to maybe fill a few inches in the bathroom and I'd have to wash myself in that. I'd have to boil water to wash it. So all of our dishes had grime and grease on them. I got accepted to this thing called the Ashland, Oregon, Ashland, Oregon Shakespeare Festival for high school juniors. And, uh, it was my first time leaving first time on a plane. And I went there and it really did shift my perspective. And it said, Oh, I can get out of this fucking place. Mm -hmm. And it was an amazing experience. I still remember the sonnet that I had to memorize for that. And it was like sonnet 29, Shakespeare sonnet 29. And, uh, the I came back, and my stepdad had filled our house with three people from Narcotics Anonymous to make money on the rent, and so my bedroom was no longer mine. So that was some dude from NA. Our basement was I don't remember his name. Our basement was occupied by a guy named John from NA. That's where I had my fucking high school portrait taken by this girl named Tanya. Very dramatic, very like mm-hmm. like blonde, bleach blonde hair smashed down with like that should whatever be the
1: image that you put on Instagram for this. So yeah, this promotion.
0: <laughs> it's I found it, I got a picture of it, and I never saw it until my 20th high school I'll give reunion.
1: You some pictures of me as a teenager.
0: <laughs> so, the uh, yeah, so and then the couch was occupied by this other addict named John who had a tick who was a, a like it was like uh Tourette's, but so it wasn't Tourette's. Where did so, you sleep? I slept so I kind of slept in my stepdad's room, not with him, but he would work the night shift so he would sleep on the couch. We'd switch. I don't know how we made that shit work, but the whole house is just filled with addicts and it was me. Were and they relapsing
1: or they were sober? I
0: think they were sober. Yeah. They were sober for the most part. But that's guy's like, Oh my god, what the fuck has my life become? And I ended up not graduating high school. Everything was fucking insane. Yeah. And, you know, this guy with the tics, you know, he try to light a cigarette and his head would just pop back over and over and over. But he could play guitar like no one I had ever heard. Like
1: Catherine helped burn in a helicopter. Jesus.
0: <laughs> like fucking, you know, Pink Floyd shit. You know, mm-hmm. it was amazing. And he was a really interesting guy, but... You know he had a lot of cocaine. He did like a crazy drugs, and I think the drugs are what that kind sounds of
1: sounds methy more than coke-y. It,
0: yeah, it could be meth. At the time, yeah. I didn't really know much about drugs right. at all. But my mom was off in the wind. You know, nobody ever knew where she was, and and uh, you know I didn't really tell many people that kind of stuff. You know, so nobody really knew. So I didn't finish high school. I just quit, and then they're like, "Well, we're going to send you to this other one." So I lost my my my. Uh, I went to that Shakespeare festival, came back, and just fucked off. Yeah. My drama teacher was just like, sat me down one day and he's like, you know what? I don't think you have what it takes to finish here anyway. Yeah. He said that to me and he wasn't trying to motivate me. He was dead serious.
1: What was his name?
0: David Hashley.
1: Oh, hi, David Hashley. Fuck you. Fuck you Fuck you, David Hashley. we homophobe. fucking find you. Wait, why was he a homophobe?
0: Oh, he was just a super Protestant, like, evangelical Christian As type. the
1: head of the drama department? Not that I'm saying, but that that's not only the haven for hetero dudes who get secret large amounts of pussy, but also it was a haven for, like, LGTBQ plus. Yeah, one. no, but he <laughs> wasn't.
0: Like, he always wanted to put on things like Winnie the Pooh. So after my junior year, before I could quit high school, we did a series of very risky plays like for for where we were from like we, we did a Stomp, Tom Stopper play you know not oh, necessarily risky yeah. but we did stuff like that yeah. and it was really kind of like for the area cutting edge and uh, he stopped all that and it was all children's theater after that year um, but what he pulled me to the side fucking yeah, shit. he pulled me to the side and he's like you can't make it I ended up in this uh, school called... Um, well, gotta
1: love Christian... Laser. Gotta love Protestant Christian motivate... Even if he was trying to motivate you or whatever he was trying to do, I love... I, I, you know, I just... I've never heard... I've never heard a good story about someone being like, you know what really helped me? <laughs> I've ne- Okay, this is something I've never heard. You know what really, really helped me? That super
0: Christian teacher I had. Oh, yeah. No, none of those guys helped me.
1: Never fucking heard that no. from anyone.
0: And, you know... I've had some amazing Christian friends in my life, for sure, 100%. Yes. But that teacher, no. Like, he, he tried to. I think, you know, he did when I was doing what he thought was right. But he didn't know what was going on. And but he didn't he, ask. He didn't even try yeah. to know what was going on. He didn't see a kid in trouble. He just saw a kid who was fucking off. Like, at and, City
1: House High School, it, I guess it was on this, based on this theory that, or a lot of the people there understood that no kid is, quote, unquote, just fucking off. Mm-hmm. That there's a reason, even if it's a silly reason, even if it's not trauma or something big or whatever, a kid fucks off for a reason. Either they've lost focus, they've lost interest, maybe there's something going on, or there's a bigger reason. Mm-hmm. There is no just fucking off, right. you know? Yeah. I don't think so anyway.
0: But I ended up in a school similar to City at school, but they weren't nearly as hands on. It was just like you go here and you do your work at your own pace. It was almost like correspondence learning. You know, it was almost like online learning, but it was in a classroom. I mean caveat it was, called, is, it was called laser. And we did have a secondary school a cool, for troubled kids, but that's it was called cool Laser name. High. And I ended up there a few weeks and I was like, fuck this.
1: I like the laser. Balance. I mean a caveat for all my praise for City Ads. There is a hands off element that if you don't show up, then you don't show up. They're not chasing you, you know because they can't but yeah it there are a lot of kids that just go to city as it's their last attempt and then just still
0: sometimes you don't make it i yeah. was lucky for i i was living in missoula with my mother you know uh and her new boyfriend sean who passed away uh at 44 massive heart attack on the job widow maker type shit. and he was just a big unhealthy guy and he was wonderful though you know he really wanted me to get out of Montana and do the things that I wanted to do. And we had that stupid shit, John Roberts powers that would go to these small towns and try to be like, we're going to make you a model. And I think that's how Ashton Kutcher was actually Mm -hmm. discovered something like that. I think the one I went to was a scam, Yeah, but he gave me money for it. And, uh, your, your,
1: your stepdad. No, my mom's boyfriend, your mom's boyfriend, step boyfriend. Yeah. yeah.
0: Kind of a stepfather. It was a father figure for me. He was a great guy. And, uh, but him and I, we'd make hamburger helper all the time. And like, Fucking chocolate chip cookies out of Crisco. It's amazing that I'm not nine thousand pounds. And uh, you know, we'd watch a lot of Howard Stern together. We, would you know, it was just fun. He got me a job as, a, as an oil technician at his at his uh, at his shop that he worked at. So I learned how to work on cars a little bit. But he's like, I want you to get out of here. So he give me this money for that stuff. Didn't work out, but he still tried. And I sit sitting home one day, and I was like, I'm gonna watch Goodwill Hunting and see what you want about that movie. That movie shifted it everything for me it was robin williams who was a huge like he was a hero figure for me and there was something about that movie that was like matt he's like i want when ben affleck his only role he was really good in i mean he's he's actually he's not right guy i'm sure but like this role he nailed it and he's like i want to come here one day and i want to knock on the door and you're not there and then he does it in that movie he comes down one day and he's like i'm fair paraphrasing of course i want to knock on the door and he's just not there and he smiles and he walks out. Of
1: course, you love Robin Williams. He's the guy that he's helps. He's the guy that like helps a you know troubled and abused dude like actually. And it's not like.
0: But I yeah. What's good
1: about Good Will Hunting is the Matt Damon character is you know he's not a child right? right. It's easy to sympathize with a traumatized abused child or something bad. You know you've got your Anne of Green Gables. I uh, love that, the, love the, that movie. No, the, the movie's great, but in the reboot, the reboot gets a little woke. Performatively woke and, in some ridiculous ways, but the reboot also pays homage to you know the fact that she was probably really deeply abused in the in the, the system before she comes to uh, Miranda in Green in uh, Av- uh, Avonlea, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so it Matt, but you always see that uh, character as a child. It's easier to sympathize, so it's like easier to make someone that needs to be helped in that way younger but matt Damon is like 20 something right yeah, yeah. he's a 20 something white kid from boston who's poor but like kind of a shitty dude who's not super nice to his girlfriend all the time not abusive or anything just like kind of standoffish and 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 uh and he's not the most sympathetic but you see robin williams be like no, I see where this has come from. It's not your fault. What am,
0: it's not on? your fault. It's not your it's fault. Not your breaks fault. It's it it breaks not down. your
1: fault. I mean, I don't know it, sure, how much sure. I
0: believe. Stop it. Stop it.
1: Stop it. <laughs> I don't know how much I believe in that. But I do. I yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. yeah, And it's, But it was that moment where he's like, I don't think I've ever cried harder at anything I've ever watched in my life than the end of that movie when you just see the car driving. I went to see about a girl. Mm. And for me, it wasn't about a girl. It was for me, It's like, I'm out. And so I found this ad in small, they advertise in small town papers and, and uh, they're like, come work in Hollywood, you know, and you know, we'll pay for your transportation, which is a Greyhound bus. That was literally a journey song. So I got, uh, I called them up, I passed their interview, whatever that was, it was just a telephone call. And they're like, we can get you on a bus like in three days, or Mm. two days or something like that. Something crazy. So they purchased a bus ticket, it was transferred to the Greyhound terminal in Montana, and I got on that you know, Greyhound bus going anywhere, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's how I ended up in California. I didn't really have two cents to my name, but I was like, I am determined to get out of here. It didn't work out the way I wanted it to, but, you know, I ended up in New York, and there was just that's a long, drawn-out story. And that's, when, but like, that's where I met you. And that's where we met, you know, like, at our bottoms, you know? Yeah. Like, it was crazy, but yeah. Yeah, so I had that that influence of theater, that influence of um, speech, Uh, all those things, going to Ashland, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, being like, oh, there's a bigger community out here, there's bigger ideas, I can Mm -hmm. live a bigger life, I don't have to live like this. I I think
1: that's what my mom wanted to give me, traveling, like, there is a bigger world than one block in New York. Yeah,
0: my parents couldn't give me that, but the theater department could. Yeah. And for what I got out of it, you know, I'm grateful for all those friends, you know, John and Chris and John Fralick and... And uh, he was amazing to me as a friend, you know, Uh, he had his own tough times, but he still showed up many times for me. And, you know, always be grateful for those guys. And I don't think I would have had that kind of sports guys are probably nice guys, but like they're not going to show up for you. In my experience, the same way that a lot of these more sensitive, Mm -hmm. more empathetic theater speech people would, you right. know, and they're still my friends to this day. Like, I mean,
1: another Robin Williams film to give a shout out to is uh, Dead Poet Society. Oh my god, dude. I know. It's so good. I fucking I still love that it. movie. It's Oh it's... Captain My Captain. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Neil. Oh God, my son, Neil. Oh,
0: yeah. It's so good. Should we wrap this up? I
1: think I think we've uh we've you know, we've laughed, we've cried. <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's no video to accompany that to prove that I got choked up.
1: That's okay. I'll uh, I'll I'll uh, make sure it's blasted out on all the media's
0: on all the social media's. Uh, so tell people how you can find how they can find you. Um, if you, can you want find me in to...
1: the club, <laughs> it's going down. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Meet
0: me in the mall. <laughs> it's going down. Am I going to have to pay for that? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no. You can find me in the club in the club. Um, I produce a podcast with Harry Siegel called F-A-Q-N-Y-C. Um, Harry Siegel, Christina Greer, Katie Honan, occasionally me, you know, riff on all the super granular politic bullshit about New York. Um I'm also on social media, you know, Alex Brooklyn with two ends, A L E X B R O K O Y N N and uh, I'm gonna be doing some more stuff, coming out with a bunch of like art shit. So it's pretty great. Yeah. You can
0: also find Alex on Elon Musk's Twitter. <laughs> All hail Elon! <laughs> <laughs> you can,
1: it's now it, it's now got to be the owner's name. Like this is Mark. Wait, what? It's Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook. This God, is Elon can you Musk's Twitter. Did we just start a trend? Yeah. Oh, this is I, I'll start a, a social media platform. This is Alex Brooklyn's I Shmio.
0: Aishmiel. Aishmiel. friendster you could just bring back friendster yeah
1: I, w- I would want my thing to sound like a little bit uh, hebrew i don't know okay. why
0: yeah i'm like a have to on the
1: wrong side on yeah. my on my dad's <laughs> side so i'm like more like i wish i was more jewish
0: all right it's been fun thanks for doing this all the way in paris see ya